0: I want to talk to you tonight about the way an ecclesia, that is a church, develops. If you could put a name on this, you can call it Church Development 101. How does the ecclesia develop? The vast bulk of psychology is rooted in scientific research basically psychology is the study of human behavior and most of it rests upon rigorous research as to how the brain works now certainly there, there is a sliver of psychology that's called personality theory and some of those theories that are purported today are uh, I would call them psychobabble, and the people that invented them should have been admitted in the skull ranch a long time ago. But most of psychology really is legitimate, and it's based on hard scientific evidence. And in psychology, in that field, there's a branch called human development. And what developmental psychologists do is they study the process in which humans mature. They look at development from birth to death. And consequently, they teach us that human beings pass through certain and specific defined phases as we grow For example, there's prenatal development, then there's infantile development, there's childhood, there's the toddler stage, the terrible twos. And then there is, after childhood, of course, there's adolescence. That's when the poison sets in. I have a psychologist friend that defines children as people who you cannot do enough for, and adolescents are people who you cannot do enough to. And as a high school teacher, I can agree with that sometimes. But even so, it is a biological truism that all life forms pass through certain defined stages of growth. That's true for human life, it's true for animal life, and consequently, since the ecclesia is a life, isn't it? It's a vital organism, is it not? It too passes through certain and specific defined stages. And what I would like to do is to talk a little bit about some of those stages. We can say this that built into the DNA of the ecclesia, of the church, there are these stages. And it is inevitable that we will pastor them if we are going to meet together around Jesus Christ corporately. What we're going to do is look to the Old Testament to trace these stages, these developmental stages. And to lay the groundwork for that, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 15 and just read a very familiar text to kind of set the stage before you look into the Old Testament. Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them who approached upon thee fell upon me. Now here Paul is quoting David And he's applying these words to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? That's going to be important later on. Verse 4, For whatsoever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So consequently, this verse tells us that the Old Testament is not just a bunch of sterile history about an ancient people. No, the Old Testament was written for our instruction. It was written for our learning. And I believe that locked within the Old Testament is a wealth of spiritual wisdom and knowledge that show us Jesus Christ and his church. And I believe that there's a wealth in the Old Testament that has yet to be mined. The Old Testament is God's picture book. And God speaks through it to us today about what God's heart and thought is for the ecclesia. And notwithstanding, I think that we can make a point about this by saying that the New Testament seems to tell us quite clearly that Old Testament Jerusalem is a picture of the New Testament church. Particularly in its apex of maturity. Now let me read a couple of scriptures along that line. Hebrews 11 verse 9 and 10 says, By faith Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city, Abraham looked for a city, that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Think about that. Abraham in the Old Testament, it says, look for a city. Well, it wasn't a physical city. It was a spiritual city because the builder and the architect was God. And then in Hebrews 12, 22, it says, but you are come unto Mount Zion unto the city of the living God. You, Christian, are come to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly or ecclesia of the church of the firstborn. So clearly, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that Old Testament Jerusalem served as a figure, as a model, as a picture of the church of Jesus Christ particularly when it's coming to fullness. And then finally, Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. And one of the seven angels talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so consequently, when all is said and done, we are left with a city. And that city is not a physical building. It's the bride of the Lamb. And John was in the spirit when he saw it. It's a picture of the church in all of her glory. It corresponds to what Paul said in Ephesians 5, it shall be a glorious church without spot and wrinkle. So if if we understand this as a backdrop, that Old Testament Jerusalem represents the Ecclesia, particularly in the height of its maturity, then we must ask the question, what was the origin of Old Testament Jerusalem? What were the steps to its establishment? And I think if we raise that question, we find the answer in the life of David. Because David, in the Old Testament, was the founder of Jerusalem. And I believe that if we trace the life of David, we will see the steps, the stages, the phases, that every ecclesia will pass through on its way to fullness. Let me mention the stages. And by the way, these are the stages that are marked by David's movements from Saul's house to the time where he overcame Jabez and established Jerusalem and named it after himself, the city of David. These are his movements. There are five of them. Number one, Adullam's cave. Number two, the wilderness. Number three, Ziklag. Number four, Hebron. And number five, Jerusalem, Zion. Now, we can literally spend days talking about each of these. They're so rich. They're so full of insight. They're so full of truth about Christ and his church. But because of our time limit, we're only going to be able to have time to weigh into the first one. And that is a dulem's cave. And then perhaps later as we talk about this and kick this around, we can maybe touch on the other ones. Also, the role of the apostolic worker, Allah, the church planter, will be beyond the scope of my message. Now, we've already heard some ministry about this before. What we're looking at is not the outside influences on the church. We're looking at how the church itself grows and how it develops from beginning to end. And then finally, what I'm going to be saying henceforth does not apply to just anything that we wrap the label church around. It would not apply to a cell church. It wouldn't apply to an open church. It certainly wouldn't apply to a denomination or an institutional church. And it wouldn't even apply to all Christians that meet in homes. Because I believe that there is a colossal difference between a home group And an ecclesia that meets in a house. And we'll look at that as we go through this. So why don't we just turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're looking at the city of God, the development of the city of God as a type and a picture of the development of the ecclesia today. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Let's begin to plow in at verse 1. So David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. Praise the Lord. I believe that Adullam's cave is a picture of. Of the beginning it's the beginning phase of an ecclesia now let me just give you a little background to this we all know the story of david and goliath david uh, made instantaneous fame in israel when he slew goliath this is you find this in first Samuel 17 at the time david was in saul's court he was his harpist his music minister and after he killed goliath His popularity soared, swelled in Israel, until it surpassed Saul. And if you remember, the sisters in Israel made a big mistake because they began to sing the praises of David over and above the praises of Saul. And this made Saul absolutely livid. He went into a murderous frenzy. He took his javelin. He tried to pin David to his four walls. And finally, David became aware, suddenly, that he was in the house of one who treated him as an enemy. He left, and here we come to the place where David makes a clean break, a clean break, never to return again to the house of Saul. And it's at this point that men defect from Saul to David. They leave Saul's house, and they gather unto David. Now, I would like us to examine this story with an eye to viewing how God begins an Ecclesia, how he starts it. And I think that if we do that, we can draw some spiritual principles out of it that will be hopefully practical for us today. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is the name of this place, Adulam. Now, if you look at the first mention of adulam, you'll find it in the book of Genesis, and in the book of Genesis, the first time that Adullam is mentioned, we are told that Judah took a wife and bore children in Adullam. So consequently, Adullam seems to be the place of birth. It's the place of birth. And I think that this establishes a critical principle. And that is, brothers and sisters, that the church cannot be started. It must be born. It cannot be started by the fleshly hands of men. It must be born from above. And I tell you what, I think that this accounts for so much failure in the house church movement. Because what we're doing is we see a pattern. We we see the method. And then we try to put it into practice. And guess what? It blows up. Because the Lord didn't birth it. We started it. I think that oftentimes we speak so glibly about starting churches. Well, we're going to start 500 churches here in this city. Let's go out and start some churches. And we speak of it just like we would speaking about putting Legos together. I mean, brothers and sisters, you and I cannot create an ecclesia any more than we can create a child with our bare hands. It must be born. Now, our role, I believe, and this would apply to workers and and brothers and sisters who, who see a vision of the church and of the Lord, this would apply to all of us who are in on the ground floor. But I think that our role is not to start it, but to prepare the womb for it to be conceived. And I think that we do that through travail. We do it through travailing prayer. Because I tell you what, there are spiritual forces that would seek at at an instant moment to snuff out anything that would represent the testimony of Jesus Christ corporately. And so we need to learn how to travail before the Lord. And some of you brothers and sisters, you're, you're, you're in the cave of a doom right now. And I think that oftentimes what we're doing is we're trying to start it. We're trying to kick it up. We're trying to crank it. But we never have tried before the Lord and travailed before him to see him birth his church. Now there's a great deal we can say about that, but I I think that we'll leave it there. Uh, Let me just say this too, that that what I'm saying really is something that David himself said. He said, unless the Lord builds the house, we what? Labor in vain. So, brothers and sisters, a dulem is the place of birth. Secondly, if you'll notice, the location of this stronghold was in a cave. It was in a cave. The womb from which the church is born is likened unto a cave. Now, the cave of Adullam was a stronghold at that time. In other words, it was a hiding place. It was a place of obscurity. If you wanted to hide out, you would go to the cave. And I think that here again, we see a little glimpse of how the church is born. And that is the church is born in obscurity. It's born in the place of hiddenness. Recall the Lord Jesus Christ and His birth. Where was He born? He was born in the obscurity of a stable. They they didn't have a mass crusade when he was born. You know, they didn't send flyers out. No, I mean, there was certainly, there was a few shepherds there that went, but but it was born in obscurity. The first church that we read about in Acts chapter 2, the same way, born in somebody's upper room. And as you read through the New Testament, you find that the cradle of the New Testament church is always in a hidden, obscure place. It's it's, it's in a cave. And I think that's encouraging to many of us who, like our brother Les, may just have a, a few people meeting in our home. That's good news because that's normal for the birth of an ecclesia. It's not supposed to be some great big thing. It begins in a cave. But let me add that it didn't end in a cave. The cave was the beginning. David's unseen kingdom began in the obscureness of a cave, but it ended up in a city. It ended up in Jerusalem, which was a light to all the nations, which had cultural impact on the community. It didn't stay in the cave. In fact, if you read the text... Verse 5, and the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think there's a subtle temptation for us who meet in homes to become insular and ingrown, to become exclusive, to have a vision of the cave, but not see the city. And we get comfortable in our hiddenness and obscurity. And we can even start boasting about it. Yeah, we're, we're the hidden, hidden remnant. We're the, we're the hidden residue. You know, nobody knows about us. Praise the Lord. Well, that's okay in the beginning. That's okay in the beginning. But you know what, brothers and sisters? The church is to be a light and a city that's set on a hill. Where demons tremble in the community at the church. It's to be Jerusalem where the ark went and the presence of God It is to move out of the cave into the city. And that's just a challenge because sometimes we can become so insular and ingrown that really the Lord is wanting to move us out of Adullam but we just want to stay and hang out there. That is not what the Lord wants for us. Also, they gathered unto David. Look at that in verse 2. After he describes the people that came to him It said, They gathered to him. They gathered unto David. Brothers and sisters, this is pregnant with meaning. This speaks volumes to us. This phrase points to the essential basis of the church's beginning and its ending. Now, who does David point to? He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. David is prophet, shepherd, king, king. And guess what? He's even priest. Why do I say that? Well, he's, he wasn't a technical priest, but you know, he wore the linen Nephi and he ate of the shewbread. And those are things only a priest can do. David was God's appointed ruler, God's appointed king, God's chosen vessel. David was God's beloved man, he was God's man. God said of David, Here I have chosen a man after my own heart who will do of my good pleasure. Now we got some people today, our Christian brothers and sisters, who will teach out of the Old Testament who will tell us that David is a picture of the single pastor. Well, brother and sister, that's not so. I'm being kind. Of today. I mean, if anybody comes close to the clergy in the Old Testament, it would be Joab. Read about Joab. That guy was a paid professional hireling. He was only interested in his name, fame, bank account, and his television ministry. He was not concerned about David. And David had him killed at the end. I I don't want to bash the clergy because there are many brothers and sisters in the clergy who love the Lord. But that system, I think, if we can come close to it in the Old Testament, it's not David. It's Joab. David is a picture of Jesus Christ, the greater David. And what does it say here? They gathered unto him. They defected from Saul and they gathered unto David. Now forgive me, but I want to contemporize this a little bit. They gathered unto Jesus Christ and him alone. They didn't gather unto homeschool. They didn't gather unto family values. They didn't gather unto home birth. They didn't gather unto spiritual gifts. They didn't gather unto some theology. And guess what? They didn't even gather unto home church. Amen. They gathered unto Jesus Christ. Amen. David was the man. He was the center of their, of their... You know, we can wax eloquent about this, brothers and sisters, but is it real? I mean, is that really what we're gathering about? I guarantee you that we can spend two weeks in your house church and we can tell you what you're gathering up to. Right. Think about it. What are we really gathering up to? Well, let me put it this way. The recovery of the church is not about a new structure. It's about a new center. Yeah. And that center is Christ. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you what, if you read through Samuel, it's, it's to me it's daunting, it's striking to find that when David is described with his men, it's always David and his men. David and his men. And oftentimes, it just mentions David. The the writer is just talking about, well, David did this and he did that. And guess what? His men are right there, but they're in the background. You can't see them. They're there. They're following along, but it's all about him. He fills the picture. But no, what do we do in our meetings? We talk about house church. We talk about ourselves. Well, the bride doesn't talk about herself. She talks about the bridegroom. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of the church is not the church. It's Christ. And I tell you what, we need to come to grips with this. We really do. I mean, these are just words if we don't go back and say, whoa, whoa time out. What are, we, what are we really gathering unto? What is this all about? What are we doing here? Because I tell you what, if we're not gathering under the Lord Jesus Christ, we can meet in our homes, we can sit on our comfy couches, sip our coffee and talk about theology in our day. But we are are nothing more than a scaled down, smallest beautiful version of the institutional church. That's all it is. So the Lord must be central. And I tell you what, that's, that's what, where we need to go with this, brothers and sisters. The house church movement as a movement is doomed. We need to gather unto our Lord. Amen. These men were seeking the Lord in the house over and above the house of the Lord. Well, notice also the nature of the men who gathered unto David. I don't know, brothers and sisters, I find encouragement in this. And I do. I admit I'm one of these people. It says everyone who is in distress, in debt, and discontent, flock to David. Okay? Now, you know, I, I read some of the commentaries about this, and to me it's kind of amusing. Now I'm not a Hebrew scholar and I I claim technical inadequacy I am not technically adequate in the original biblical languages but it seems to me that the commentaries have it wrong what what they describe here is a group of disgruntled malcontents social misfits befuddled souls who in effect were outcasts and here they are with nothing better to do gathering unto David. I don't see that. What I see is a group of people who are stripped of their ambitions, who are stripped of their hopes and dreams in Saul's house, who are utterly, have utterly come to the end of themselves. And I see these people looking and saying, wait a minute, we made a big mistake for requesting a king. (laughs) And this guy, David, who's being hunted by our guy, he's the anointed one. In fact, all of what we need, our distress, we see in him the comfort for that. Our debt, we see in him the remission for that. Our discontent, we see in him The alleviation of that. They saw David as someone who can give them what they needed. They gathered unto him for that reason. And I think we're like this in many respects. Oftentimes, those of us who were part of Saul's house, as it were, we got real disturbed. Distressed by the carnality that that drives it. We become distressed. We, We become distressed by what's happening. Then, of course, we're in debt because we realize that uh, we can't clear ourselves. We need someone else to do that. And then finally, we become discontented. These men were discontented by the empty form and the merrily official title and the powerless office that occupied Saul's house. And they were discontented. They were weary of the old establishment, and they flocked to David. And I think that what we have in the New Testament is a picture of this. Paul describes the church as being those who are neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, skiffing, bond, or free. But the church is where Christ is all in and all. And that's what these men saw David as, the resource for all their needs. They didn't come to the cave with ambitions and agendas. They came stripped of those things. In other words, to be contemporary, they didn't come to start their own Christian empire. They didn't gather in the cave to start their worldwide ministries. They didn't gather in the cave because they got cut for the position of music minister in Saul's house, so they thought that, wow, maybe we can be a music minister in David's cave. They did not fall into the classic Big frog in a small pond syndrome. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We have a lot of people. That's their base motive for joining a house church. Well, I can't make it here, so I'll go here where there's a small pond, and I'll be the big frog. That's not what they were doing. They didn't come in to start their a new and growing cave church movement. They gathered. On to David because they saw in him the resources that would meet all of their needs. And I think that this really is an apt picture of the kind of people that the Lord builds with. People who are stripped of their ambitions and their agendas and come to meet around Jesus Christ alone. And to learn what that means. I really think that. You know, so often our churches blow up just because we are not like these men. And I think it's interesting, too, that we have the number 400. Now, I I don't want to stretch typology here, but could it be possible that that has some kind of significance, the number 400? The first mention of 400 is when we read about how Israel was in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. Think about that, 400 years. That would take us back to what, the 1500s? That's a long time. I think that speaks of perpetual bondage, perpetual slavery, 400 years serving Egypt. And without a deliverer, it was an impossible situation. They were bound, they were enslaved forever. Well, brothers and sisters, could that not possibly speak to the kind of commitment that the Lord needs from those of us who seek to be part of the ground floor of his house, those who are in perpetual bondage to him, bond slaves to Christ. It says here in the text, it says, and David became captain over them. This speaks of the touchstone of the church. They didn't come to David thinking, wow, we're, we're free from our debts and, and we're, we're, we're free from Saul's house and you know we're, we're going to join David and do as we wish, We're free. We're free from the religious system. We're going to do as we like. No, they gathered unto David and made him captain over them. In other words, he was the head of their meeting, their corporate life, their mission. And they made him captain over them. They saw in David, although he was rejected and despised, they saw in him that he had the anointing of God on him and they cleave to him, and they submitted to his headship. That's the church, brothers and sisters. It's when men and women gather unto Christ, and they put themselves under his headship, not free to do as they wish. Another thing they didn't do is they didn't just try this out. They didn't say, well, we're going to leave salt out. We're just going to kind of test this cave thing out. Let's just try it out. Now, certainly, if, if you're involved in a church that's Thriving and, and God is meeting you, and you're moving forward. they are going to be visitors that are just going to try out. That's fine. But a dulem is the beginning of a church. It's the ground floor. And you cannot build with uncommitted people. The Lord cannot build in the lives of the uncommitted. He builds with those who have made Jesus Christ captain over them. Now, I want to demonstrate this, and I think it will we will give you the flavor of the kind of commitment these men had. Turn turn over to 1 Chronicles 11.15. We're going to come again to the place of Adullam. We're going to revisit it. These men came back to Adullam, both David and the men, some years later on. But I think, again, it speaks to the fact that Adullam, in this particular phase of the birth of a church, The Lord needs those who are utterly abandoned to Him, utterly committed. 1 Chronicles 11, verse 15. Now three of the chief men went down to the rock to David, into the cave of Adullam, while the army of the Philistines were camping in the valley of Rephaim. And David was there in the stronghold, he was in Adullam, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David had a craving and said, Oh, but someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. Verse 19, and he said, Be it far from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Think about that. Here he is, David, in the cave of Adullam. His men are around him. They're surrounded by Philistines who are armed. And David says, oh, I would like a drink of water. And boom, those three guys go out, risk their lives, bring water back to him. That's a picture of what it means to make David captain over us. They sought to meet his need. He didn't even need to tell them. In in the form of a command, what he wanted. He just shared his need. And what were they there to do? They were there to meet his need. They were there to bring David into his kingdom. That was their mission, brothers and sisters. At Hebron, it says, they came to make David king over all Israel. Their burden, their vision, was to bring David into what was rightfully his. And that's the mission of the church, brothers and sisters. It's to bring Jesus Christ into supremacy and preeminence. In our own lives first in a doulum, but later in our communities. And this is what Jerusalem speaks of. Frankly, if we're not committed to Christ in that way, we're not laying our lives down for Him, then we have a home group, maybe even a special interest group, but we don't have an ecclesia. It's something other than an ecclesia. It must be born on the basis of the headship of Jesus Christ. Well, notice, back to 1 Samuel, notice chapter 22, verse 1. I just have two more points and then we'll close. Chapter 22, verse 1. So David departed and he escaped to the cave. David departed and he escaped. He was being hunted by Saul. He was being attacked by Saul. And by the way, If you're having meetings in your home, the anointing of God is not upon you, and Jesus Christ is not being manifested, and people are not being drawn to it, Saul will leave you alone. You won't even hear a whisper from him. But let me tell you, if people start defecting from him to you, he will be awakened, and he will attack you. And meeting in the cave means bearing the reproach of the Lord. There is a reproach that comes with standing outside the organized church, outside the religious system, and meeting under Jesus Christ. There's a reproach. And these men, because they were willing to share in that reproach, because they were willing to share in the sufferings of David, were able to share in the glory of the city of Jerusalem. Are you willing to bear the reproach outside the organized church? And it's a fierce thing sometimes. Are you willing to go to the Lord outside the camp and bear His reproach? There's a lot more we can say about this, but I think that here is the foundation. And you know, the psalmist said, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundation of the church is not Christ, gathered unto him, making him central, making him head, then there will come a point where you will find yourself in the death throes of disintegration. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to become a home group, a special interest group, and you're going to leave the Lord Jesus behind. Mm -hmm. And you'll never come to the city. You won't even make it to the cave. So the Lord, may the Lord help us to build on that one foundation. And notice, there was a rock in a that the men came to. That rock is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, the Lord said, but my Father in heaven, and upon this rock, this revelation of myself, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the storms can come. But guess what? The house will stand because it was founded upon a rock. May the Lord help us to revisit our foundations after tonight. May he have us test the structure. May he have us travail before him so that he can build his church, his house. Amen made it under the time do I get a t-shirt for doing that brother I avoided the dish gong at the 5th annual global house church conference I want a t-shirt brother that's hard to do praise the lord well you you are now ready to grill me with your questions yes sir would you comment briefly on the last four points (laughs) okay try to do that. Um Okay, the second stage is the wilderness. This is where David and his men go through the wilderness experience. And they travel through different wilderness wilderness is the wilderness of Moan, the wilderness of Ziph, and Ziph means refinement. So this is the place where relationships are refined and redefined. This is where your foundations are going to be tested, brothers and sisters. It's in the wilderness. All hell breaks loose in the wilderness and everything that David touches does not turn to gold. Three things happen in the wilderness. Saul attacks him relentlessly. And what I would share with you, brothers and sisters, is take a look at at David's response to Saul. David was free to criticize Saul when it was necessary, but he studiously avoided hurting him. He didn't base his regime on haranguing Saul. In fact, if you read the Davidic Psalms, listen to this now. If you read the Davidic Psalms where David talks about his persecutions and he talks about it a lot. He says, my soul was among lions. He never once mentioned Saul. Think about that. And he's the guy that's behind it all. No, he saw that Saul was anointed of the Lord. Now we have a lot of Saul in Christianity today. We have a lot of Saul in Christianity. But you know what? The brothers who are part of Saul's house are anointed of the Lord. Why? Because they're Christians. And Christians are anointed ones. We need to be careful that we don't base our gatherings around a relentless attack against the system. Because I tell you what, if you do that, then David will leave because David doesn't do that. The second thing is you have Jonathan. And Jonathan is an interesting character because he supports David. He, he cuts a covenant with David. I mean, they, they did all the right things. They said all the right words. They exchanged garments. They exchanged weapons. They cut the calf. And he said, I love you as my own soul. And he did. But Jonathan never left Saul's house and you will meet many Jonathan's as you stay out of institutional Christianity and they will support you they will stand with you but they won't leave Saul's house and guess what those who stay with Saul die with Saul and where Saul's spirit rules today David's place is empty but Jonathan's is not now watch David's attitude toward Jonathan. Did he harangue him? Did he come and go, oh man, that guy's messed up. He needs to be out there. He's a loose cannon. You know, he, that prophetic revelation of Jesus Christ in his body. Well, Samuel dies. David doesn't have him anymore. And in the wilderness, your vision of the church and the Lord is going to be tested brutally. There will even come a point where you start to lose the vision. Maybe I need to go back to Saul. It was, you know, it's a lot easier there, too. More comfortable. I mean, sure, I didn't like what was going on, but it was a lot easier than this. And and your vision will be tested. But I tell you what, this is how the Lord makes visions into reality. Remember Joseph? He had that great vision of the sheaves and God's destiny for him. Next thing you know, he turns around, he's put in a pit, he's put in prison, and the psalm says, his soul was laid in iron, and the word of the Lord tried him. And the word of the Lord will try you. You say you have a vision of the church and of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the body? Well, let's find out. Put you in the wilderness and let's see because it's going to be tested. Samuel will be taken out of the way. Should I go on or should I go to another question? Go on. Okay. All right. Then you have... Uh, Ziklag. And Ziklag is another testing arena. And basically uh, what you find there is, it's pretty complex. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens, but I guess there are two things. David has contention in the ranks. There are troublemakers among David now. Troublemakers (laughs) in the church? (laughs) Cannot be. Yeah. In fact, when the amount destroyed the city of Ziklag and they took David's family and they took the families of the men and they burned the city to the ground. They were getting ready to stone David. Think about it. I mean, here they are. And it says he encouraged himself in the Lord, and then he recovered what was lost. And if you read 1 Chronicles 11 and 12, you find that in Ziklag, every day men left Saul and gathered unto David, until David had an army like the army of the Lord. Now, let me just say one point about that, and that's this, that... It seems to me that those of us who stand outside of organized Christianity tend to view the church through certain metaphors. You know, Some of us see the church as a family. And those of us who look at the church through that particular lens, we're strong on relationships. We're strong on familial ties. We're strong on community. Okay, And then we also have the body metaphor. And those who view the church through that lens tend to, tend to emphasize the mutual functioning of every member, the oneness of the body the gifts. And those seem to be the predominant ones. Of course, there's the bride too, and our brother Les shared about that quite eloquently last night. And of course, the bride is that picture of that divine romance between the church and Jesus Christ, and that we are to know Him. We are to experience Him. We are to love Him passionately. Those seem to me to be the three dominating metaphors that govern our view of the church. But you know what? The church is also an army. And it seems to me that we don't really think of it that way. But you know, that's the dominating metaphor in the Old Testament. That these men were were added to David to bring him into his kingdom. To make him preeminent under the nations. And their task was to wage warfare, not against Saul, who was a brother, but against the Philistines, who represent evil powers, principalities. And this really, to me, brother, is a throwback to the Old Testament, where God's eternal purpose is stated in the book of Genesis. What was man created to do? To have dominion over the earth, to express God's image. And Eve was to be a help me for Adam in that work. And so, brothers and sisters, I believe that one of the major missions of the church is to advance the kingdom of God. Now, now by that, I don't mean canned evangelism, and I don't mean wielding earthly power and trying to, you know, gain political power and economic power, but I'm talking about the fact that God has entrusted us with authority to defeat and to dislodge satanic powers in the earth. For this purpose, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to destroy the works of the devil. And I think the church has a two-fold task in that. One, we are to overcome the gates of the enemy. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Well, what are gates? They're defensive structures. So the picture there is that the church is moving forward in power and authority, bringing her Lord into view and dislodging the enemies of God, evil spirits. Not men and women, evil spirits. And bringing Jesus Christ into preeminence in our communities. And then the visible side of that is that we bring the kingdom by being servants to the world. I mean, look at the Lord Jesus. What did he do on earth? He served the world. And we as the church are to go out. We are to fulfill the mission and ministry of Jesus as the army of God, not wielding earthly power, but being servants of the master. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. It's an army that is a servant to men and that strikes fear in the hearts of evil spirits in the kingdom of darkness. That's what Ziklag's about. And I think few of us have gotten to Ziklag. Then Hebron, this is where they anointed David to be king. This is where they they came to David and said, We are one flesh with you. Hebron uh, is the word that means communion. It means union, fellowship. The New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew word Hebron is koinonia. It's an unsurpassable, inseparable union. And when we go through the wilderness and we go through Ziklag, we are built together. Not in just rhetoric, but in reality. It's inseparable. And then finally, Jerusalem. And there's a lot we can say about that. But in effect, Jerusalem is where God put his name. God put his authority. The Ark of the Covenant was brought into Zion. It was a city set on a hill. It impacted the community. David reigned over all nations. Read the Old Testament. Read the Davidic Psalms about Jerusalem, Zion. And you'll see a picture of the church what God wants for the church. And he will bring us into that. But we have to start out in the cave. And too often, we're bickering and fighting and we will eventually consume one another if we don't realize that the basis of our meeting is the Lord Jesus.